Welcome to the Sanctions Space Podcast. I'm Justine Walker, Global Head of Sanctions, Compliance and Risk at ACAMS. Well, we're back after a bit of a break. The past six months, we've been fairly silent on the podcast because we've just been focused on what has been happening and the really dramatic evolution of sanctions targeting Russia. But we're here, we're back full steam ahead, and I have two well-known experts in the field of sanctions and illicit finance policy joining me today. Dan Tanaban, who is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council Geoeconomic Center and a partner at Oliver Weinman. Dan regularly appears in print, television, radio. You'll have seen him on your TV screens across the past 11 months. Also here today is Justina Gudzowska. Justina is the Director of Illicit Finance Policy at the Century. She has had a very illustrious career, including as an expert at the United Nations, advising the Security Council on sanctions against ISIS, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And of course, more recently with Morgan Stanley as a compliance and legal executive director. Dan, Justina, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So look, Dan, I think we just have to start with this, don't we? It's a simple question, but actually it's quite a complex one. You've been sanctioned by Russia. How did you find out? Why have you been sanctioned? And what do you feel about that? Uh, so a friend actually pinged me to let me know that I'd been sanctioned. My immediate response was sanctioned by whom? I was in London the following Monday after being sanctioned on the Friday, and I'd be lying if I wasn't a bit paranoid during that trip. It was definitely not something that I had on my bingo card for 2022. Luckily, my firm's reaction was, well, if they spelled your name wrong and the company's name wrong, are you really sanctioned? But in all seriousness, it's been one of the greatest honors I may receive in my career. And there's a number of other folks that I've worked with in past lives that have also been added to that list, but there's only 1,200 Americans on it. So I'm honored with the company that I'm listed with, but what it represents is rather important to me. But I guess more importantly, my grandmother did always say my mouth would get me in trouble. So I, I guess this is a case in point. So always listen to the grandmother. I think that's the um, takeaway from that one. Okay, so Justina, you've not been sanctioned. But the Sentry is a really interesting organization. You conduct a lot of research on illicit finance in Africa and indeed beyond. Can you just briefly talk us through your role and what the Sentry does? Sure, of course. But first, uh, I hope my association with uh, Dan here does not get me <laughs> sanctioned by association. So I, I, I didn't know this. You know, maybe I shouldn't have said yes to this podcast, but uh, we're all in danger now, Justine. Uh, so, yes, I do work for the Century as a director of illicit finance policy. And the Century is a small but mighty nonprofit uh, that both has an investigative and a policy focus. What the Century does, and it really grew out of our founders' work uh, to stop the genocide in Darfur, when the founders realized that there's often a very perverse incentive structure behind atrocities. There's often a profit motive that systemic corruption and atrocities are very much intertwined. Uh, so they really started focusing one in an organization that focused on following the money behind atrocities. So we do a lot of deep dive investigations into what we call violent kleptocracies. Started out mainly in sub-Saharan Africa, but we are going global in a way. We're also working on 
uh, Myanmar as well, uh, and also expanding to other countries. And we follow the money, try to really look for the oligarchs of those countries. Who are the business people, those that are enabling the kleptocracy to function, stay in power, and to uh, commit atrocities against its own people? And what we do with what our findings is bring that information to governments around the world, as well as with the private sector, because given my role in the private sector, we, we know that sometimes the private sector banks will act before a government does uh, because of the reputational risk. So even if someone isn't sanctioned, uh, if we have investigative findings about that person or their entity, uh, we're happy to share it with banks and other private sector actors so they can make their risk decisions about where and with whom they want to do business. Thanks, Justine. And we're going to come on to some of your work and how that relates to the war in Ukraine. But Dan, I actually do want to turn to Ukraine because I started at the beginning of the podcast saying, you know, we've had this silence on the podcast for the past six months just because we've been so busy dealing with the implications of Russian sanctions. From your perspective, what does the world of sanctions look like now, given to this time last year? Is it really as big a fundamental change that many of us talk about? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously been an interesting 12 months from a sanctions standpoint. I think, you know, not just as the ACAMS podcast been quiet, but I mean, relatively speaking, the US, UK and EU governments have been relatively quiet over the last couple of months from a go forward sanctions standpoint. I think also some of that has to do with the fact that the length of the campaign and the increased focus on military intervention versus economic intervention is something that may be shifting the calculus of this situation. Compliance departments around the world have really been operating under the kind of expect the unexpected credo for the last year. And while many closely watching the space weren't surprised to see Russia invade Ukraine again, I'm not sure anyone was really prepared for the speed and scale of the economic isolation of Russia and what that really meant to Western interests in the country. Although, you know, I saw a report this morning that basically said less than 9% of Western companies that have said that they are exiting Russia have actually been able to exit Russia. So I do think you're still seeing a situation where there's a challenge mechanically and even leaving the market where it's now illegal to divest for foreign businesses in Russia. So I mean, sanctions for financial services, I think, have certainly taken on you know, a large role in the minds of banking leadership for years, going back 10, 15 years at this point. I think what this current situation in Ukraine and the associated Russia sanctions has really done is put it more broadly on the landscape for all sectors that might not have normally had to pay as much attention. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, from my perspective, that whole merger now across export controls, trade, you know, the areas of work where Justina works around wider corruption side, other elements has just all merged there. And Justina, actually, there's a real point I want to discuss with you because you know, we've seen a lot of media attention to the Wagner Group in its role in recruiting fighters to support Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, concerns over this group, you know, are not new. The Sentry, you've worked really closely with CNN on a confidential investigation which looked at the group and looked at its atrocities against civilians in the Central African Republic. 
how significant is this group? How concerned should we be by them? And actually, is there a relevance here for sanctions compliance professionals? Yeah, absolutely. I think there is. I think we should be extremely concerned about this group. Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, the Century has been looking at this group uh, you know, before anyone was really talking about uh, Wagner. They have been in the Central African Republic, uh, one of our core countries that we focus on for about five years now. Uh, and they've used it as, as a, you know, almost like an incubator and as an example of, of things that they could do in other places around the world. They've committed uh, atrocities. Uh, they have gained access to valuable natural resources, uh, such as gold and diamonds that could potentially help Russia evade sanctions. So although we are very focused on uh, Ukraine right now and Wagner Group as a fighting force there, I think the last I heard was that it was about 50,000 strong, uh, 40,000 of them being criminals that uh, came out of Russian penal colonies. But we have to remember that Wagner Group has really been in other countries and has been expanding in Africa, its footprint in Africa. They've been in Libya, they've been in Central African Republic, uh, Mozambique, uh, Sudan, Mali as well. And they have their eyes set on other countries, other countries with natural resources. Uh, so they're looking to expand not just a military footprint, but their business footprint. And that's, I think, where we really have the link to compliance departments. It's very important to identify companies, cutouts, uh, shell companies that the Wagner uses to do its uh, trade and natural resources to move uh, natural resources across borders, uh, potentially to move money. And I think that hasn't received enough attention. There have been some of their companies that have been sanctioned, but certainly not enough. And, it, and it's very difficult uh, to investigate because they conduct their operations in such a, a covert nature. But as we look at Ukraine, as we look at these unprecedented sanctions, uh, we really have to close the loopholes uh, that are created by the Wagner Group's presence uh, in many countries around the world, in particular in Africa. Justina, thanks for that insight. Dan, actually on this, I just want to ask you a little bit because you are regularly sort of being asked to join live TV and all of these things. Has there been much focus on this group? Have people really discussed Wagner Group with you or is that really sitting to the sidelines? Is the awareness really there about the importance of their role? No, and actually Justina and I and a few of, of our friends were emailing about this a few weeks ago. I mean, I think I spend most of my time interacting with the private sector, but also the media, to your point. And this doesn't come up much at all in terms of the role that the Wagner Group and others like it are playing in continuing to keep this conflict afoot, if not making it even more violent than it's been thus far. I do think, obviously, the, the sanctions or the, the designation, I should say, placed upon them last week is a start, you know, but more importantly, firms that may ultimately have a role in facilitating transactions related to this organization certainly need to be put on notice. So people really need to understand that group, understand its income streams, where it's moving. So, you know, that's one for us to really watch on. But 
we are approaching nearly a year. So next month, it is going to be a year since the invasion of Ukraine. Dan, you indicated nobody quite had expected it just to be quite as fast. As much as it was, people thought there'd be an escalation, but you know, not necessarily to the level we've seen. So we've had all of these breathtaking sort of measures. We've had lots of new developments. We've had the G7 oil price cap with some other partners linking into that. Where do you see things going over the next sort of 12 months? What's 2023 going to look like in terms of Russian sanctions and the broader breadth of sanctions there? Yeah, I mean, look, we're approaching the one-year anniversary. There's a 10th round of EU sanctions that I'll be forthcoming in commemoration. Anniversary seems certainly like the wrong word, uh, but in commemoration of the, the year of this conflict. I mean, from a U.S. standpoint, uh, what I mentioned earlier, you know, there is a pivot in strategy focusing more on military intervention um, than sanctions intervention. But, you know, just to note, we're rapidly moving towards the February 5th price cap on all Russian refined petroleum products, which coincides with a broader EU ban. Interestingly enough, the world has found a way to exist without the support of Russia. But that being said, there's still plenty of sectors where sanctions aren't imposed, and there's still consequences that are being explored as these sanctions are being kind of drawn out. And I'm thinking about, for instance, some middle shot companies in Germany that have a huge reliance on Russian customers to purchase their goods. Broader sanctions could end up bankrupting those companies potentially. And I do think there's been that calculus over kind of the, the past year to really look at those unintended consequences. But separately, those secondary sanctions have still not been imposed, out, at least outside of a targeted manner. We did see skinny secondary sanctions, so to speak, related to exports of certain high-tech goods. I think the next phase is also to look at enforcement. Um, there's been a lot of sanctions levied in the last year. The U.S. watch lists have increased in size by 40%, for instance, but we haven't seen much enforcement. There's talk of the EU setting up an equivalent of OFAC, but as we know, that will take some time. But we're also seeing that certain members of the bloc have to actually create legislation to enable them to even enforce these sanctions. So I, I do think there's a, a lot of things to look out for as you see more sanctions, but also the counterbalance of, of what happens as a result of non-compliance with some of these sanctions. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think the hard work is, is really just beginning. It's almost the easy job is laying on layers of new sanctions, uh, but it's trying to close down those loopholes. That's the hard work. And uh, reminds me of my work when I was at the Treasury Department. I, my focus was really Iran. And that was the hard work, trying to find the loopholes, trying to find uh, bring enforcement cases. Uh, and those sometimes take years to develop. So you're not going to see OFAC enforcement cases right away. That's going to take some time. And I love the term skinny secondary sanctions. I, I might steal that from you, but we, we haven't really seen that. And that's the tricky point. I think there's a lot of probably discussion going on backstage between the U.S. and other countries like India, who has increased its imports of Russian crude. Uh, there was news about Pakistan potentially importing Russian crude. So I think there's probably a lot of uh, discussion going on in the background with, with those countries. And we certainly saw that with Iran. But how long uh, will those discussions go on before 
there are some more robust secondary sanctions. I, th I think that's really the next step, but it's difficult because you also don't want to alienate allies. You don't want to lose uh, the coalition you have right now. So there's going to be a conversation here is when does skinny become meaty secondary sanctions? I think that's really one for us to watch in 2023. But you know, the rest of the world hasn't stood still. And Dan, you recently, well, you were a contributor to the recent World Economic Global Forum, their risk report of 2023. So if we look beyond Russia, what is the greatest geopolitical risk that we're likely to see in terms of how it may impact sanctions compliance? I think more broadly, the great decoupling and economic statecraft related issues present some of those larger risks on the horizon. Um, the 2023 edition of the Global Risk Report ranked these risks by severity over the short and long term. Over the next two years, geoeconomic confrontation ranked three. Over the next 10 years, it dropped to nine, um, which I, I was skeptical of as an outcome because I do think this will continue. But I think Post-COVID-ish, post-Trump, we're seeing more nations look to secure their supply chains, even at the cost of allies' economies. You're seeing companies preemptively move manufacturing out of China. And, and we haven't spoken of China yet, but despite a relative detente at present between the U.S. and China, I mean, you're seeing the imposition of sanctions. You're seeing companies move manufacturing. I will say in the week post Davos, it's safe to say that globalization has certainly been challenged, but we're also seeing new alliances grow. We're about to see South Africa, for instance, embark in joint military exercises with Russia and China. Also, as a result of the invasion of Ukraine, you're beginning to see more wargaming come about to look at other potential sanction scenarios. And that elephant in the room, a potential escalation of the tensions between China and Taiwan and an associated Western response. We know of a number of global financial institutions that are beginning to plot out if this, then that, as a result of escalation between those pressures. We've also seen over the last two years, China has created its own counter-sanctions regime, the unreliable entity list, the anti-foreign sanctions law, but has held fast on actually using them. At some point, China will impose sanctions on Western businesses in relation to their sanctions, to sanctions on their interests. But what will be that red line? So I do think those are some of the items that we're looking out for going into 2023. Justina, does that sort of reflect your feelings about the future for 2023 beyond Russia? Yeah, I, I think absolutely right. I think we haven't talked about China yet, but China is watching how the world reacts to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and making its calculation vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. So couldn't agree more. And there's one element, Justina, that I've realised we've really not spoken about, and I think it's worth talking about, but this is the focus around the whole freeze to seize of Russian assets. So we're going to go back to the Russia context here. We saw a lot towards the end of last year, and in fact, the last podcast we did in June was really talking around the freeze to seize, sort of targeting Russian assets and using them for the reconstruction of Ukraine. You know, have we seen much progress on this? Where is that? That freeze to see seems to have sort of moved on a bit in thinking. I think it has. It's a very, very difficult issue. Uh, the three of us are, are sanctions nerds. I, I hope you're not offended by me calling you <laughs> that. But at the beginning, there was just a lot of confusion and people thought uh, freezing 
men seizing, which is not the case and shouldn't be the case. So it's a difficult issue. And someone you know, like me with a sanctions background, uh, sometimes I feel uncomfortable with the discussion. You shouldn't just be able to take uh, frozen assets and repurposing them for other matters because that really undermines the whole purpose behind sanctions. Uh, sanctions are issued with a lot of due process. So I think to go from freezing to seizing, there has to be some kind of criminal aspect. You have to be able to link uh, the activity to a crime, which is very difficult, time consuming, uh, and doesn't happen overnight. So uh, in the US, you did have some legislation pass uh, at the end of the year in the NDAA uh, that basically allows uh, seized assets to be given to Ukraine uh, for war reconstruction. And we all agree, I think, I definitely agree that Russia should pay for the war, but I think you have to be careful uh, not to undermine the impact of sanctions. I think in Canada, uh, they passed a very broad law allowing for the forfeiture of uh, frozen assets. And they're using that law now to go after some of Abramovich's assets. Uh, and it'll be an interesting test case. And I think there will be a lot of legal pushback. So it's a difficult issue. I think we do need to find a way to make Russia pay for the war. We do need a faster process, but we can't do away with due process. If I can add, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with this, with our, our backgrounds coming from a similar place. It is kind of a, a tough argument when you look at that freeze to seize, I mean, particularly when you talk about central bank or government assets. I mean, those are essentially assets owned by the people of a country. So that criminality, that link to some sort of a nefarious activity that was directly funding this in, illegal invasion of Ukraine, that is the challenge of, of kind of where do you draw the line that even the assets that would be in scope for seizure? Because, you know, I really do struggle with the thought of necessarily punishing the Russian population. But then again, those that still remain in the country could be kind of conflated with supporting the regime. It, it was a really tough existential debate. We saw the same with the Afghan central bank assets as well last year. So, look, I think this is going to be one we can pick up in more detail in a future discussion. But, Dan, just before we close off, I did want to ask you one last thing, because we are seeing a real uptick around crypto sanctions, and we've seen some really interesting designations. Tornado Cash would be one. Just very, very quickly, is that the trend for this year? Are we going to see more in this space? I mean, crypto certainly having a moment. I do think you're beginning to see some economic Darwinism in action. From a broader risk standpoint, the firms that took compliance, legal and risk issues seriously, those will be the ones that will remain. But you still have, and, and who can forget one stablecoin issuer who publicly announced that they'd ignore OFAC prohibitions. So I, I do think the U.S. government has made it very clear that crypto is no safe place to use ill-gotten gains or launder money or evade sanctions. But to your point, we have seen an uptick in enforcement related to deficiencies of AML and sanctions issues. And I suspect that'll continue as we know there's other shoes left to drop regarding open investigations. Um, and again, the, the U.S. government has made it very clear it will continue to isolate digital assets firms known to be providing that material support to bad actors. 
I also think with blowups like we've seen in the last few months, traditional financial institutions are looking more skeptically both in providing banking services to digital assets firms, as well as looking at their own strategic interests. But we've also seen digital assets exchanges begin to have the risk-reward discussions, much like a traditional financial institution, on things like whether to even allow transactions with Russian nationals, non-sanctioned Russian nationals. The crypto firms have certainly been put on notice. We will see more enforcement over the course of 2023. So look, the world of compliance is definitely more complex than it was this time last year. There's a lot of changes here. Justina, Dan, thank you so much. You've put a lot of the table there, which I think we need to pick up in future podcasts and indeed masterclasses and our sanction summit at Hollywood this year. But thank you so much for everybody listening. Do sign up to hear the stories behind sanctions and we'll be back in the next couple of weeks with a further update. Justine and Dan, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you, Justine.